The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Morning again, everyone. Today's sermon is on... Matthew 5, 8, which is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you brought us here together today to enjoy you, to worship you, to listen to you. We pray now that you would help us to grasp this, this verse, this sentence that you spoke so many years ago at the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, we pray that you'd give us great insight into it. Help me to preach it. Lord, give us ears to hear what you have to say today. Thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this this week is uh, the sixth in a series on the Beatitudes, and uh, if that confuses you to hear it, uh, don't worry because you're probably in pretty good company. So welcome to the longest running sermon series in Shady Grove history. I started it many, many moons ago and I've added an an installment about every year or two uh, since then. Uh, And though I would love to believe that many of you have a sharp recollection of of everything that has been said in the previous sermons. Uh, I prepared this sermon more with the resignation in line with reality that uh, that's probably not the case. So I hope, I, I hope to, that this sermon will uh, kind of stand on its own. So even if you're not familiar with any of the others, uh, I've kind of factored that in. Uh, even though for sure, as I've been going through this series, my, my hope is that all of them kind of fit together at some point, but... Um, you know, I really see that the Beatitudes uh, are, are best understood in the context of each other. So just pulling one out uh, kind of feels a little bit uh, out of balance, but we'll do the best we can here. Um, this, uh, this year's sermon is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And it's a big topic, and there's many, many things that could be said about it, and um, And so I've had to kind of narrow my scope to the following questions. And those are in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Uh, It's going to start with, where does this beatitude fit with the others? What are the beatitudes? What is this beatitude referring to? Why do God's people necessarily reflect this beatitude? And how is this trait unique to believers in Jesus? There's definitely a lot of overlap there, um, but this is how it shook out for me uh, for the purposes of this particular series. I'd love to hear what you would do with it, but today you have to hear what I have to say. Uh, In introduction, I want to mention that uh, all along we've been saying that these Beatitudes are a description of God's people. So when we get to this uh, Beatitude in particular, I think it really gives us pause. I mean, does any Christian ever really feel like they are pure in heart? You ever get to that point where you're like, now I'm pure in heart, or 
You know, we, we each know the daily sense of tug of war in our desires and how often we stumble and fall in our words and in our deeds and in our thoughts. Pure in heart seems like a bit of a stretch. We know what kind of life the gospel should inspire. We know what Christ's love for us is worthy of, and yet we know ourselves and how far, how far we fall short. However, that said, we want to be careful of discounting this beatitude as just pie-in-the-sky idealism. Though we want to be honest about our sinfulness, it is important for us to consider that Jesus clearly defines his followers as being pure in heart. If you are a true believer, it is there, even though until glory, we will sorrow and wish we, that we had it so much more. All right, so let's start with where does this sixth beatitude fit in with the others? Well, first, it is paired up with the seventh. Just like the fourth and fifth were paired, and so taken as a pair, the sixth and seventh beatitudes have the wonderful distinction of describing the final product of the Beatitudes of God's family restoration project. These two Beatitudes are the culmination of God's grace working in God's people from the inside out. What are we becoming as Christians? What are we being transformed into? According to the Beatitudes, as we progress in sanctification, we are more and more becoming pure in heart peacemakers. These pinnacle beatitudes rest on or are the logical and inevitable result of our new inclinations described in the fourth and fifth beatitudes. Specifically for this beatitude, we could then say that the blessed who hunger and thirst for righteousness in the fourth become the blessed who are pure in heart in the sixth. So then, by the will and power of God, he leads us to certainly acquire what he has brought us to desire. All right, number two, what are the Beatitudes? Are they conditions? They surely sound like conditions that lead to rewards. So with this Beatitude, it can sound uh, like being pure in heart is a condition uh, that must be met in order for us to see God in heaven. And though it is true that those who are not pure in heart will not see God, we would say that being pure in heart is not a condition in order to see God in heaven, but rather it is a characteristic that is always produced in those who through the gospel have already, in a sense, in this life, have seen the God of grace. This is the point of asking Cornerstone's doozy of a question. There is one that stands above all the others, and it is this. Um, and one of my hopes is that the students will graduate being able to answer this question in their sleep. Maybe some of you already can. Um, this beatitude, how, or this, this particular question, um, pondering it, being able to answer it, learning how to answer it cannot be done in your sleep. So Cornerstoners, it is time to listen up for the answer. You're going you're gonna to hear it now to this particular question. And again, maybe you can already answer it, but maybe you can't. So here it goes. It's a nasty question 
It's fraught with pitfalls. And it simply goes like this. And it's written in your bulletin there. Maybe you've already figured out the, the blank. Do I have to obey God to be a Christian? Do I have to obey God to be a Christian? Sounds basic enough. But I guarantee that parsing this question correctly could save many doctrinal, relational, and emotional woes. What do I mean by that? Well, one of our sister PCA churches that I know had a split, essentially, over this very question. Many of them had read a book together titled, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. If you've if you go back a little bit in age, you might remember that book when it came out. Um, it was a little bit controversial. Well, we actually read it in our Cornerstone book club years ago, and it forced some important theological sharpening. Um, however, in that church, it ended up putting people in two irreconcilable camps. One of our PCA sister churches. That's odd, something that seems so basic, leading sincere Bible-trusting Christians to opposite answers. Some saying, yes, Christians of course must obey God. And with equal emphaticness, some saying, absolutely not. No, God does not require our works of obedience, but rather faith alone. Well, something's off balance, right? Doesn't, something doesn't feel right. Maybe you caught it. Do we have to obey God? I mean, certainly we should, right? I mean, when push comes to shove, though, do we have to? No, right? <laughs> but that feels disturbing to say, like we haven't really quite put our finger on it. Do we dare want to say that obedience to God is optional? Well, what does the, what does the Scriptures have to say? Is there good reason to say... No, you don't have to obey God. Well, Romans 3 says, we maintain that, our, that we are justified by faith apart from observing the law. And Romans 4 says, to the man who does not work, but trust God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Galatians 2 says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And Galatians 5 says, You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And of course, John 3.16, which can't ever be said often enough, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So then... Ultimately, we don't have to obey God? Well, not so fast. Is there also good reason to say, oh, yes, we do? Well, Hebrews 5.9 says, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for who? For all who obey him. John 5.29 says, those who have done good will rise to live. 1 Corinthians 7 says circumcision is nothing, but then it goes on to say what counts. What counts? It says keeping God's commands is what counts. James 2 famously says, 
faith without deeds is dead. And a great verse in Revelation 12, 17 says, the dragon wages war against two, those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And there are many more. So then how do we resolve what appears to be a contradiction? Is the answer just both or just it's a mystery or are we stuck or is Christianity done for? No, rest assured, we're good. The answer to the question is a very profound, it all depends. <laughs> depends on what? On what we mean by the question. Remember, it's a nasty question because it can mean two very different things without warning you. So two people who might theologically agree 100% could easily have two heartfelt, different heartfelt answers because they don't realize they're answering two different questions. Well, what are the possible meanings of the question? First, it could mean, do we have to obey God in order to be a Christian? The answer to that is emphatically, no. Um, we become true Christians, we know, by grace alone, through faith alone. Nothing, to, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, period, done. Very clear. Second, though, it could mean, does one who has become a Christian necessarily obey God? The answer to that is, yes, they will. Not, though, as a condition to attain God's love, but as a certain response to those who already know that they have it. Just let me say that again. Not as a condition to attain God's love, but as a certain response in those who already know that they have it. So as we start moving to the third, the third question, this is what this beatitude is getting at. Obedience is necessary in our lives, but not as a debt we must pay or to maintain good standing with God, but more naturally, it's necessary more naturally, like how a fresh spring will necessarily produce fresh water. All right, so what is this beatitude referring to? I think the best parallel to it is Jesus' answer to the question, teacher, what is the greatest command? And Jesus said, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Here, Jesus amazingly boils down the good life to this forged connection between love for God and how it will always be manifested in obedience to him. And he punctuates this twice uh, on, on the night of the Last Supper. In John 14, he says, If you love me, you will obey my commands. And in John 15, he says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. So the particular emphasis of this idea of being pure in heart is the integrity of the entire Christian life. And it runs throughout our affections, 
our motives and our actions. Jesus gives strong warning against those who honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And we know from James 2 that you can express your concern for another saying, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but do nothing about their physical needs. Well, what good is it? That's no integrity there between words and actions. God is not honored or pleased with our mere words of love, of course. Who is? Do you really want to be thanked by someone who's being forced to do it? Or do you like it when you realize that you've been, been uh, somebody's been sweet-talking you in order to get something from you? I remember getting a call quite a few years ago from a guy in our youth group. He really loves skiing. And uh, he was pretty good at sweet-talking. And he told me that the other guys had been talking and they were wanting to go skiing and they were, they were just talking about how much they would like for me to come along with them. And, uh, you know, just like, man, how they wanted to meet, you know, just let's invite Bruce, you know, and, they, you know, and I was pretty impressed with how long he took to finally getting around to it because I knew it was coming. And he finally did inform me, that there was only one hitch though, that they didn't have a ride. And, um, and if I went, then you know, I'd have the privilege of being able to drive everybody. Um, that, that really felt great, didn't it? <laughs> of course, this, is, this lack of integrity is not just with our words, but even good deeds, extraordinarily good deeds, can be done with another motive than love, of course. And these lack pureness of heart. In 1 Corinthians 13, famously says, If I give all I possess to the poor, but have not love, it's nothing, and I gain nothing. God is not some household god or a household idol that they used to set up who wants to be served by dutiful worshipers who seek only to gain his favor and his blessings. He is our friend and is driven by friendship in the way he treats us, and he wants us to be the same with him. There is a purity about true friendship because it takes a genuine interest in the welfare of the other. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And we know, of course, the next day that he did just that. So in some ways, this beatitude is simply saying that we know we've become his people when we become his true friends. We are pure in heart when, in faithful response to him and in what he has done for us, that we have a growing love for him and a satisfaction in him that more and more compels a life of words and deeds that are an expression of that love for him. So then moving on to four, why do all God's people reflect this beatitude? Meaning here with this question is, how can it really be so certain that each of his children will come to love him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Charles Spurgeon said of this, the purification of the heart is a divine operation which cannot be performed by ourselves or by any human agency, 
but must be wrought by him who is the thrice holy God. That's three cornerstoners, by the way. All right. Thrice holy. And when he, uh, when he works in someone, it is always essentially the same way. So he works the same way in all his children. Ephesians 2 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all and through all. Meaning as varied as we may seem and are, those in the church of Christ have had a shared experience that has redefined our lives. Regardless of age, status, or background, Christians have a core affinity in Christ with each other. We discover this when we travel to foreign countries or even when we read books from past centuries. Find a Christian and most likely you have instantly found fellowship. You share an understanding of reality founded on the gospel of Christ that has brought you in tune with dreams and affections and values that you now hold in common with all other Christians. For each one of us is a new creature who has been reborn of the Spirit, about which Jesus said that no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. And into those who have received this sight, God pours out his love. Romans 5 puts it this way. It says, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Spirit whom he has given us. Well, how? He goes on to say in that chapter, by enabling us to see the cross and to really get it. That there, just outside of Jerusalem, at the place of the skull, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we all get that if you're in Christ. It is normal for someone to feel that they need to find themselves in this world. At least it seems like you hear that a lot out there. Or to figure out who they really are or where they fit in. But for every Christian, though their story is different, they each have found themselves in one epic story. An eternal story. And a story with an unimaginable twist in our favor. And those kind of stories, after all, are the very best kind. A little more than 10 years ago, Peggy and I were given tickets to Handel's Messiah sing-along Christmas concert at the Kennedy Center. A few of you have heard this. Very desirable tickets. They were free, but at that time, if you wanted a good seat, a really good seat, you needed to camp outside. And you needed to get in line. And it was overnight. You had to stay overnight. And some of our gals did this. I'm pretty sure Aaron did. Um, Caitlin Mitchell definitely did. And I remember she was the one who gave us tickets. Each person could get two tickets. And so there were some left over, and we were one of the the fortunate ones to get tickets. And 
Peggy and I got these tickets. And so that night came and we were so very excited. And as we drove, we were singing the Messiah along the way, getting our voices ready for the real day. Everybody gets to sing, everybody sings along and you're, you're led by the conductor to sing. And it's a wonderful experience. Um, the Kennedy Center comes into view and anticipation is building. And then, I don't know, back then, I just found it odd to have to get to the Kennedy Center. There was a choice in the roads. And let's just say he chose poorly. (laughs) Quickly, we realized that we were now passing the Kennedy Center, and soon it was behind us. And I noticed we were no longer singing. And we needed to get this ship turned around, but every turn just seemed to, to worsen our situation. And time was slipping away, and there were rumors that even if you had a ticket, if you didn't get there on time, that it would be given away. Uh, And so finally, in a moment of clarity, I did succumb to the numerous suggestions to stop and ask directions. And so we get put back on track and fly to the Kennedy Center and run to the concert hall. And, uh, And the doors were shut. But there was a line for those who didn't have tickets could get in that line if you wanted. And I, I said, hey, look, we, I have tickets. But we were told that we were too late and that our seats had already been given away. Now, we were free if we wanted to get in line and see what happens. So we went to the back of a pretty long line and waited. And I didn't give us much of a chance of getting inside the concert hall But then we could see that the line started to move and there was an official looking woman walking down the line and she was counting and she was walking pretty fast and and so so hopes rekindled. But then she she, she comes all the way and she gets right to us, right in front of us and then she puts her, I I kid you not, she puts her arm down like this, like, like a toll gate and she just said, she just declares that no one beyond this point can enter. And I checked behind us and laughed. Um, I mean, she didn't really look like a jokester, but, um, um, you know, but I guess I just thought the whole arm thing was like really hysterical because there was, it was just Peggy and I. It was a lot, it was just us two. And it was like, it just seemed so dramatic, like, you know, and just like, like, was that really necessary? Like, like, you know, so I was, I was laughing and I said, are, are, are you serious? And, and, uh. She said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're now full. There's no more room for you. And I just said, I said, two people? And she said, yep. I said, you sure about that? I was like, yeah. And so stunned, the line moves on, and Peggy and I just, we just sort of, I guess we just sort of followed along in a distance and, and with the lucky people. And we reached the door, and we could hear all this joyous singing about Jesus, and we saw people inside being seated, and uh, we had blown it, and we were on the outside. We did stay there for a, for a few songs, but just on the outside, just listening in and maybe hoping a little bit, just, just really paralyzed. And, um, but with no seats, denial eventually turned pretty, pretty quickly into resignation, and Peggy said, so. And um, right about then, I kind of wish I had said, just a little longer, wife. Don't lose heart. I really think something amazing is about to happen. 
but I didn't. Um, all my abilities to finagle, which I should say are considerable, um, to zig and to zag and to negotiate were no match for the Kennedy Center that night, and all hope was gone. And then it happened. In, in, in 30 seconds, we would have been gone. We would have been out of sight. But the door opens, and a guy looks out at us and says, is it just you two? Yes, it is. I have two seats for you. Come with me. Instead of taking us into the concert hall, he took us down a side hallway to the last door on the right. And the door opens and music comes streaming through. Going in, we were at a bit of a loss to realize that we were walking into the closest box seat to the stage. Maybe 20 people or so were in it. We were directed to the front, in fact, to the very two seats in the box that were closest to the stage. Now, raised on hidden camera, this is absolutely true, I, of course, am now consumed with scanning for the camera. I mean, there was the arm which was ridiculous, and now these seats which are ridiculous, and so this had to be a setup. Had to be a setup, and I'm looking around, I'm like, I'm, I'm just looking around going, okay, where is it? Because somebody, like, this is just gonna be, ah, you know, you know. But no, no. And as I just sat there in disbelief, the guy next to me leans over and says, I kid you not, he says this. He says, do you know what seats you're sitting in? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, pretty good ones. And he said, he said, you're sitting in the most honored seats in the whole room. If a dignitary were here, this is where they would be sitting. So Peggy and I looked out upon all the good common folk and we waved. All true. The music was great from there, but I just couldn't stop marveling at the unbelievable and complete reversal of our circumstances and how much, I really couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about how much it was like the gospel. Of course, the Bible gives us many word pictures and metaphors um, of comparisons that go infinitely farther than that. God tells us that we are like sheep who have wandered away, lost and alone and in danger in the wilderness, and yet somehow we are sought for and treasured by a great shepherd who carries us home. He says we are prisoners in a dungeon on death row and deserve to be there, and yet somehow were set free by the judge himself who paid our debt with his life. We are orphans abandoned, without name, with nowhere to belong, and yet somehow chosen and adopted by a king with all the standing and glory that comes with it. And we are ragged, addicted, used and abused prostitutes that the prince somehow fixed his affections upon, and he will not be deterred till she is his royal bride. All these are different angles to help us get our hands around God's heart for us. 
and the reason that the Son of God would take on human flesh so that he could have a body that he would sacrifice on a cross for us. Why would he do that? I mean, certainly we're helpless. Certainly we need it. We're helpless without him doing it. But really, why would he? Just who are we to him? How does the gospel make sense from God's perspective? And we know how it makes sense from our perspective. We need it. How does it make sense from his perspective? Sounds crazy that he would do it. And to our amazement, in the end, if we've really seen it, we have to simply conclude that somehow we must be his beloved. And the point here is that until we realize his heart for us, our heart will never be changed toward him. And this can only come through the one gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For as he himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Which brings us to the last question. How is this beatitude unique to God's people? Meaning, is our pure trust and love for God really an unknown experience to the rest of the world? Are we really that unique? We must always be careful against thinking of Christianity as just one religion in the big soup of all religions. Christianity stands in stark contrast. It stands alone in many of its most important claims in comparison to all other beliefs. And one such claim is in its formula for religious living. All the world's religions except Christianity are pretty consistent and predictable in the way they think about good deeds. Namely, you can become acceptable to God and earn his favor and avoid his wrath by obeying and, uh, and coming in line with his do's and don'ts. Do good and good will happen to you. Do bad and bad will happen to you. This then motivates us to try and meet the standards. If we deserve it, it is awarded to you. It is entirely performance-based, and such a God is not really, in the end, driven by love. He's more like a vending machine. What you get from him is determined by what you put in. How he feels about you and treats you is in response to what you've done for him. But the Christian claim about God is 180% different. Christianity holds that none deserves God's favor because none can deserve it. Our evil is infinitely great and his standard is infinitely high. So if we are to receive God's blessings, it must be entirely as a gift. And this is what Ephesians 2 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Okay, now imagine with me being in a group of pious representatives of the various religions. If you could ask one question, each person gets an opportunity to ask a question to all the others. If you could ask one question to show the merits of Christianity... 
what would it be? All right? I submit to you, when the next time you find yourself in such a situation, to ask this question. Which of us should love our God the most based on how much we've been loved by our God? Which of us should love our God the most based on how much we've been loved by our God? Which is to ask, which God loves the most? Now consider the following ridiculous questions. Does your God love those who rebelled and sinned against him? Would he lay down his life in exchange for yours to pay for your sins against him? Does your God promise to freely forgive anyone who simply calls on him, no matter what they've done, no matter how bad they've been? Murderers, every, like, is that your God? Would he do that just by calling, or, or must they somehow prove themselves to be worthy of it? Does your God make an appeal to you to come to him for mercy? Does he urge you to come to him for mercy? Would your God adopt you into his actual family with all the rights, name, and inheritance that goes with it? I think these would be bizarre questions to any, any other than a Christian. Seriously, who could, who could have a better reason to love their God than we do? Okay, but back to this formula for righteous living. Okay, so maybe we should love our God more. Maybe we should love our God the most. But what is this free grace claim going to do to pious moral living? For the objection quickly arises, if you say that salvation is by grace alone, then you must forfeit good religious living. You can't have it both ways. If God gives his favor as a pure gift, and I don't have to do anything but ask to get it, if I can be as bad as I want to be, without facing consequences and just ask for forgiveness, and I'm good to go, if God's blessings are not in any way tied to or dependent on me being good, then why should I be good? Wouldn't such teaching just lead to a spree of sinning without fear of punishment? Christianity answers this objection amazingly by claiming that though this free gift of God does in fact completely free you from punishment of the law, it does not, it does not remove the drive to follow God's law, but rather establishes it. For as Romans 2 wonderfully says, it is God's kindness that leads us toward repentance. We believe in a God who is kind, who has forgiven us much, and therefore we love much. Remember what Jesus said to the woman, she who has been forgiven, love, forgiven much loves much. We too have been forgiven much, and we love much, and we trust much, and we obey much, which is to also say we are pure in heart much, 
though certainly not perfectly. And so also, in such a wonderfully fitting way, the pure in heart are also humble in heart who go out into the world as much forgiven peacemakers who embody the mercy of God that they proclaim. So, in conclusion, this beatitude does promise that the pure in heart shall see God. On this, Spurgeon is very uncharacteristically uh, brief. And he said, Oh, the splendor of that vision. It is useless for me to attempt to talk about it. And so I won't add to that. But I'll sign off with a fun verse, I think, in John's first letter that Drew so nicely read for us. And it sort of flips the beatitude around. And it says, Now we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So that's, that's clear from the beatitude. We're going to see him. Those, those who appear in our will see God. But then it has this little test. It says, everyone who has this hope in him, the hope then of seeing him, so we will see him, but then whoever has this hope in him, the hope of seeing him, and the hope of being like him, whoever has this hope in him purifies himself. It's a wonderful verse that's worth a lot of deep pondering, and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do so look forward to seeing you. And we are amazed by how much we have been loved. We know we don't deserve it, and you don't love us because we do. Somehow you have taken us to be your own, to be your beloved. And in your love, you would do anything for us, even lay down your life. Lord, we pray that we would recognize the friend that we have in you. And our hearts would be converted more and more and more. And that we would recognize that you, you who are our friend, who have loved us so much, we can now love you. We can love you with the same love that we have been loved. We can love you freely. Not just to get something but because you are our best friend. Lord, we thank you for this time to consider these things, and we pray that you would work in us more and more to be pure in heart. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.